0: welcome to attached podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good the bad and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be attached to we here at attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk that bad advice using science i'm dr patricia robertson out of the university of tennessee and the college of nursing and the department of psychology with a phd in child and family studies
1: I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. I'm faculty in the and Family Therapy Program, and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist.
2: And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods out of Dallas, Texas. I have a PhD in marriage and family therapy, and I'm currently working as a behavioral scientist in family and community medicine. This episode, we're going to talk
0: about some current events in pop culture that we want to air some opinions about, specifically uh, the final episode of The Bachelor. We'll also break down the uh, academic article, The Cognitive Dimensions of Household Labors. And last but not least, we will break down some sage words of advice that we have found. As always, if you've heard or read some advice you wanna talk about, send it on in. You can leave us a message at 652351374 or email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com, or tweet us at attachedpodcast. Actually, while you're at it, please like and subscribe our podcast, and go ahead and follow us on Twitter. Before we get to all of that, how's everybody doing this week, this month, this year, whatever you want to talk about?
1: I'm doing pretty good. Uh, The people on the podcast can't see, but I'm right now getting way too much love from my cat, Albert. (laughs) Like, so much love. I don't even know what to do with it. Uh,
0: Albert is literally standing on Jacob's uh, shoulder like a parrot. I no,
1: Things <laughs> are good. They're good in Iowa. It's finally cooled down, um, and it's beautiful again here.
0: Fantastic. Um, my uh, parents came into town this weekend.
1: Uh, Did you give them a project to do? I find that's always very useful with parents.
0: Yeah, agreed. Do what?
1: Give them a project.
0: Well, yes, we did a lot of projects because my birthday is on Monday. So, um, birthday? thank you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. fishing for that at all. Oh. The, the pause that you left in.
1: Yeah, really you were funny. fishing.
0: <laughs> so we did a lot of like birthday type stuff. So it was fun.
2: Yay. Not anxiety inducing at all. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> my mom is coming tomorrow. And uh, my daughter, Charlotte, is very excited. She created a whole list, uh, a different kind of to-do list. Um, when my dad comes, we make a list of things that we cannot accomplish ourselves because we have no practical life skills. <laughs> and when my, when my mom comes, she gets a whole list of really fun activities that Charlotte wants to do that I'm just hoping my mom will do. <laughs> Isn't your mom an artist? She is. Art is definitely on the list. Charlotte is. Very into art, and uh, my mom loves to do that. So it'll be really good for both of them. <laughs> it'll be really good for both of them. I'm glad it'll be good for both of them. Yeah, it's definitely it's good, good for great. me. Yeah, that's right. That's right.
0: Well, let's go ahead and get started. So the first uh, thing we're going to talk about is current events. So a famous child development scholar named Dr. Bronfenbrenner emphasized that our lives and relationships are all impacted by things in our environment, be it locally, nationally, or in the broad culture. So for the first segment, we're going to take a moment to highlight cultural events in pop culture that may influence the lives and relationships uh, of our listeners and ourselves. And that's a very serious way of describing and justifying our conversation about The Bachelor
1: jacob <laughs> yes <laughs> it definitely has a big influence on all of our lives and relationships because if you're not watching you should i should <laughs> just point like out that how- bachelor in paradise the new season of bachelor in paradise starts monday um and oh, as God. they note, as they note on uh the promos for it um they, instead of like pack your bags it's pack your baggage because some of the people on the show Man, they have a lot of baggage. Anyway. I uh, was
2: so excited uh, that this was going to be the last Bachelor segment we were going to do. <laughs> and it nope, sounds like this nope, is pretty. Yeah,
1: nope, not not, not ever getting away from this, Sarah, until you start <laughs> watching. It's going to be here every time.
2: Oh, my goodness.
1: Actually, there'll be a hiatus in the fall. There won't be any Bachelor again after oh, no. September until, like, February. So that's you can you can handle that. Uh, but let's talk about the season finale of the bachelorette in a two-night event hannah b finally decides who she wants to propose to her so it comes down to two people tyler the the incredible the very handsome very muscular dancing champion not really a champion but he likes to study dance at vanderbilt and was the captain of the football team or the quarterback something like that and jed from nashville who's a singer-songwriter who's hits include jingles for uh um, dog food. Oh. Anyway, I so mean,
0: off the bat, they seem I like mean, hmm, winners.
1: Yeah. Uh Tyler C is definitely a winner, but Hannah B does not pick Tyler Tyler C. He picks <gasps> she picks Dad. <Yeah. laughs> yeah.
2: So, um What's with the last initials though? I mean uh, like they're all grown adults. I don't understand.
1: Well the problem is is because the Bachelor franchise is basically full of white people who are all born within the same time oh, area.
0: Same name. Oh. And,
1: yeah, they all have the same names. So you have to have like Tyler C because on the episode you had like three Tyler you know, the first part you had three oh, Tyler. Oh,
0: gotcha. Okay. Uh, Yikes. There were, you know, like, there were three there was little- Tyler's
1: there, I think there was two Tyler's. Oh, okay, here. wow. I mean,
2: okay, sorry. Way. That wasn't the that wasn't the relationship detail you were hoping to talk about. But I just couldn't listen to another description of the show without feeling <laughs> I had to clarify this fifth grade in classroom.
1: <laughs> so anyway, uh, on last night of the Bachelorette, Jed Wyatt, who's the singer songwriter from Nashville, writes a special song for Hannah, then proposes to her, and she says yes. But if you follow. Oh no! Any of the uh, news around the Bachelor, you would know.
2: We don't. He, we don't. be clear.
1: You would know that a few weeks ago it came out that right before Jed went to go on the Bachelorette, he had a girlfriend. In fact, he spent the night with that girlfriend the night before he left to go start filming the Bachelor.
2: Oh, she needs higher standards. Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. Well, she didn't know that. She didn't know what was going uh, on. Supposedly, they that's they. That's awful. Him, but he had told this girlfriend that he was just going on the bachelorette to promote his music. Fair. And so Fair. Um, Anna, Anna, in the final episode of the bachelorette, she said that the day before that story dropped, Jed had mentioned to her that, um, you know, he had kind of sort of dated somebody right before, but he really wasn't that into them. And it really wasn't that serious, but she had text messages and evidence of them traveling to like tropical islands together, which suggested otherwise. So as the Bachelorette ends, she breaks up with Jed Wyatt and then they bring Tyler out the very end. And she asks him out on a date. But the reason I bring this up tonight, not only was it very dramatic and interesting to watch. Oh
2: my God. I can't
1: imagine. So
0: So this all happened in one episode. She was, she chose him. She Got proposed to by him and then broke up with him and then asked Tyler
1: on a date. Yeah, basically. I mean, it didn't. I mean, it happened in the episode, but most of this has been recorded months ago, right? So before the the end the end of the Bachelorette actually happens two months after they stopped filming. So two months after they are engaged, so they are not together anymore. But I wanted to bring up a concept to tie this back into relationships, not that I just yes. love Bachelorette. This concept of honesty in relationship. Because as a therapist, I a lot of times have difficulty with the word honest. Mm -hmm. In particular, because um, I have worked with many couples who've experienced infidelity in many different forms. And there always seems to be this demand of honesty. The problem I have is when people get to the level of honesty that they, like, if a partner who was the one who cheated in whatever capacity gets the level of honesty for the other person, that sometimes can be detrimental to the relation. And what do okay. I mean by that?
0: Yeah, exactly. That's what I was about to ask you is let's back up a little bit and explain to me what, how you are defining honesty.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So honesty, I'm, I am defining as factual, right? If you are honest with me, you are going to be—you are going to give me just the facts, right? I want to know all the details, all the facts. Okay. Where I think, on the other hand, and what I actually think people are listening for and wanting is openness. Okay. Which I think a lot of cases mm-hmm. is different than—oh yeah—honesty. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think this, this view of honesty in relationships sometimes not only for people where there's been cheating. Sets people up to, to fail, mm-hmm. right? You being honest with me is really, I feel emotionally distant and you haven't been open with me about how you are feeling or experiencing.
2: You haven't been right?
1: vulnerable. Exactly. So
0: openness, openness is more the emotional valence surrounding the facts of the event?
1: Yeah, because if you think about it, mm-hmm. um, facts in relationships, I don't want to sound like they're, like I'm promoting fake news or I don't believe in actual facts. But facts and relationships are fluid because the two people yeah. or people in the relationship are perpetually growing, right? So, if at the beginning of our relationship I said I don't like Brussels sprouts, that may be a fact. But in you know five years, I may really like Brussels sprouts. So if I think, they're
0: prepared in a specific way. Perhaps if you deep fry Brussels sprouts, <laughs> suddenly they become delicious.
1: <laughs> Actually, I really like Brussels sprouts. Maybe that's not the best example. <laughs> but what I think is, um, so I mean, you know, the uh, like in the last episode of The Bachelorette, it was all about honesty. I want people to be honest with me. I want honesty. And that almost is, I feel, forced intimacy. And uh, Patricia, our favorite professor, Joe Wechler, used to always say, the best way to avoid intimacy is to demand it. And I think that but, that can be the problematic side of honesty. I if you, if one. you're, really, yeah, if you're really I looking like, for a connection and um, vulnerability, to use your word, Sarah, I think you need to focus more on openness than on honesty. That was my hot take. For the that. Well, that's what I would tell yeah. Hannah B. If she was sitting here.
0: So, what is the, what would be the difference then, in your mind, of demanding? honesty versus demanding openness or is there not a difference and the problem is simply the demand of it
1: no i think that there um i don't think you can you can demand honesty and people can give you honesty right i can give you the facts right but that is not going to satisfy right like if i said hey i um was on facebook and i sent this ex-partner of mine 15 messages over the course of three weeks um, and these are what the messages included. Yes. That's honesty. Right. And in some ways that can be really useful, but in my experience and you all have worked with couples as well, that's not what they're, that doesn't satisfy that person. Right. Exactly. They want to know well, go ahead, Sarah.
2: I'm sorry. I was going to say, in fact, I think sometimes it can spur more conflict. Right. Exactly.
0: Wow. Sorry. Why would it spur more conflict
2: because it's it's exactly i mean this is what Jacob's already saying but it's exactly not what they're looking for and not what they're needing Uh, and so more data information is just more fuel for the fire that they're not getting what they want they're not being heard they're um and they're still not going to trust what they're getting anyways is kind of my experience right
0: okay i understand so what you're saying is people tend to demand or ask for honesty when in reality because that's not gonna State their emotional desires and they should uh request openness so request the the emotional feeling that their partner has or is having
1: yeah because i think right? that provides yeah. more context to the process right you know if um if you are messaging somebody on facebook who's an next partner and your current partner is not happy about that um Giving them the facts, being honest about the situation uh, could be useful to a point, but honesty in and of itself Mm -hmm. is not going to repair that relationship, right? Honesty is going, honesty is, that's going to be potentially part of it, but honesty is going to demand details, which in those cases, the details aren't as important as the emotional process surrounding the infidelity, however you want that to her. So let me show for example, right? Hannah B wanted Jed to be honest with her right. In some cases, he did detail that a he had a girlfriend. B uh, in his mind they weren't serious and how but she never knew what serious meant or how he defined it. right? So in some ways, the day before the story broke, he was being honest with her. I don't know all the details exactly what was said, but on the flip side of that, Had he been open with her and saying, hey, I initially came on this show to promote my music. I wasn't coming to fall in love because I was dating with with somebody else beforehand. The problem is I met you and my feelings changed and my reasons for changing on the show came. If he was open about that, then this process unfolded much differently.
0: Just hearing you say that makes me feel emotionally different too, right? Yeah, like I me too. Understand, oh, that's what openness would feel like as a receiver of that message. So that makes sense. Yeah. Wow, Jacob, way to bring that amazing difference out of The Bachelor. Yeah, it
2: almost makes me want more Bachelor content.
1: Don't worry, it'll come your way.
0: And don't worry, I'm not going to watch it, but I'm just very curious about your extrapolation from.
2: Yeah. No, yeah, Fair. I'd like to. I'd like to hear you do more of that.
1: <laughs> oh well, then you should join us on Monday nights when I uh, <laughs> yeah. have a glass of rosé and we watch oh. the we watch the Bachelor and the Bachelorette. <laughs> oh, about a half glass. The lesson, fact and, like,
0: is that I am busy on <laughs> Monday night.
1: That every the fact is fact. You're not being open with me about the fact that you think trashy reality television is bad.
0: Is that what I'm being?
1: No, because you do like some trashy television. I know that about you.
0: I do. No, but you're you're right. I wasn't being open with you. We were modeling that behavior.
1: Yeah. Our relationship's gonna fall apart now. I can just feel yeah. it.
2: Guys, guys, we're not very many episodes in. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, thank you
0: very much, Jacob. So next let's move on to the academic deep dive. Uh, today we're going to talk about a new paper. Out of Sociology, The Cognitive Dimensions of Household Labor by Allison Deminger. This piece was published in 2019 in the American Sociological Review. For our listeners, if you guys want to read this article in full that we're about to go into, we will post a link of the article in the episode description and uh, post it on our Twitter feed. So before I let Sarah take it away, a little bit of background. So there's been a lot of research on household labor like how men and women divide physical labor, particularly like cleaning and cooking and shopping and laundry, and those all classify as physical labor. More recently, the research has started to explore what's called emotional labor, or how couples manage feeling within the relationship or within the family. For example, how a wife might work to appear happy even if her kids are misbehaving, or a husband might hide his disappointment when his family isn't excited about his landscape. But researcher uh, hasn't really explored the cognitive dimensions of household work or household labor. And that is what this study really begins to explore. So Sarah, can you tell us a little bit more about this paper that you found?
2: Yeah, I think uh, it's a qualitative study. So they, this researcher did Interviews of 35 couples, so 70 70 partners within those couples. They were not all opposite sex relationships, but mostly they were middle, middle, upper class. And she looked to see if she could uncover more about this mental cognitive piece of how couples participate in their housework. Part of this has been, this idea has been mentioned before, rather, in research it's talked about in terms of management working as a project manager or a household manager all of the mental cognitive work that goes into managing the home and so part of these interviews that she did i'll start first by saying that she outlines cognitive labor as a process that includes four different activities so okay. the first piece of cognitive labor includes anticipating needs so this idea that you're future oriented and you're anticipating what is my family going to need? What is this household going to need? Uh, are we going to need more toilet paper? Are we going to need groceries? Uh, what meals are we going to cook? Who needs to go to the doctor's office for a checkup? Uh, what comes up next in my kids' school schedule? Maintaining that schedule, et cetera. Um, when does the law ant- need to be mowed? Who needs to check the mail? That's right. Anticipating okay. that those things are going to be needed and thinking about them in the future. Now, the future could be five minutes from now, it could be two days from now, it could be a year from now but it's all about that mental anticipation factor. Uh, And because uh, this piece especially is so abstract, it can be very, very disruptive and distracting. Meaning when I'm at work, I might not be focused on my paid labor because I'm anticipating what might need to get done at home. It also means I can do it in lots of different places. It's going to distract from my leisure time. If I'm busy having fun or if I'm on vacation, I'm going to be thinking potentially about what needs to get done for my family. And uh, can
0: I just say right off the bat, uh, this is very triggering for me.
2: (laughs) I'm not gonna say that that's not why I picked it. (laughs) I too identified, and it took me a while to digest the paper because I had a similar reaction about, "Ooh, page two, already feeling real hot." (laughs) Like I probably do a lot of it. Um the second part of this process is that once you anticipate a need, you have to identify options to fill that need. So if my child has to go to the doctor, where can we fit it in our schedule? How would we, who's going to transport that kid? Um, who needs to call and make the appointment? What are the different steps that need to get taken or what are the different options that need to, that are possible to fill that? And then there's a decision-making process, the pro- which is very easy to understand this process of making the decision about how the work is going to get done. And then the last piece is monitoring. So um, assessing for watching for whether progress is being made in any of those activities. So this researcher looked at nine different domains of household labor and the specific cognitive uh, labor, the specific ways that uh, cognitively we have labor around these domains. So for example, we already talked about like groceries, but selecting a child care center, maintaining a family calendar, deciding when sheets or towels need to be changed or cleaned, and laundry needs to be done, ensuring bills are paid on time, selecting gifts for people's birthdays, uh, identifying items to be purchased, recognizing an item that needs repair, researching leisure activities. I'm, I may be triggering you more. It was very triggering for me. Uh, so in these interviews, she asked these individual partners to track in the prior 24 hours, all of their activities that they did in terms of household labor and what this looked like. And then she went through for each of these um, individual partners and did and interviewed them about these activities, but also lots of other processes about how they decide to take care of their family and take care of their home. And she coded each of these activities as each of these domains as whether they were female-led, male-led, shared, or whether she could not German. <laughs> um,
0: so when she did the interviews, yes. did she interview the partners in separate rooms Separally. at different yeah, times separately. or did she interview yes. them together? No, separately. Okay. Yeah, separately. So they couldn't hear each other. Right.
2: She so they could it.
0: influence each other. It was all right. their own cognition
2: and their own memory, which is- That's amazing. right. That's right. And so then she could assess which partner seemed more aware- Uh, seem to be able to describe more activities in this area in each of these domains, finances, social relationships, shopping, et cetera. So as you could probably have guessed, uh, women do more of this across the board. They especially do more of that anticipation in the beginning, thinking ahead of time about what needs to get done. And they especially do more of the monitoring at the end to look and see whether Progress is made in any of these activities. They are more likely to do uh, the activities, the cognitive labors that aren't that are not discretionary. Meaning, they're, um it's less maybe about leisure time and more about childcare, for example, stuff that we can't really skip. And it's in the domain of decision making, which this researcher considers to be one that's really related to power. Right. So if you think about who does all this thinking ahead of time, and then who does all of this research and all of this cognitive work to do all of this background work to figure out what needs to get done and how to get it done. Then they come together, men and women, or it's rather it's kind of a shared, equally distributed activity to make it is des- to make a decision about what will happen and how they will fill that need. And that activity tends to be filled by both men and women. And is something that this researcher considers to be kind of more, uh, more connected to power, right? Which uh, makes sense <laughs> to me. So this is, this can be really stressful. Like I said, it can be really distracting. It's very, very abstract. Uh, So it can also connect to, although her research was qualitative in nature, it can also connect to a lot of conflict in relationships, right? Because this is all happening in the background. I don't know that my partner is doing this. I might see the end result or you might come to me to ask about a decision that needs to be made, but I might never see all of the preparatory work you do in, um, Anticipating that need or identifying options to it. So it's all, in your it's, in head. Head. it's all in my head. It's all abstract. It's all invisible. It doesn't, and even though it can be very costly and make me very anxious and very worried and take away time from my paid labor I'm supposed to be doing or et cetera, um, uh, I don't see that that's going on. And because it's very diffuse and can be hard to identify, the person who's doing that background labor themselves might not give themselves the credit. They're due. Right. So they might be tired and worried, but they might not really understand that that's because that cognitive labor they're doing is a ton of effort and really, really important. Kids don't get to the doctors if nobody remembers that they have to go to the doctors. Right. They don't remember that um, if you don't have a mental image of your kids' closet, but you need to go school shopping, then you don't know what they have, you don't know what size they are, you don't know what size they're gonna be. And you don't know when you're even supposed to go shopping, whether or not you have enough money in the bank. All of those things have happened in the background of your mind before you even get to Target. It's really a lot of, uh, it's really just an interesting description and a really very thorough description of all of this really very invisible and potentially stressful and unsatisfying kind of household labor that can go really unappreciated. And I think think can be has a lot of implications potentially, as Jacob was saying earlier, a lot of implications for how we might work with couples in therapy, but also how couples could maybe attend to each other differently or be more open about the kind of mental labor that they're doing in the background.
0: Right. Because like you're saying, not only does your partner not necessarily know that all of this cognitive work is going on in the background, but the person themselves uh, maybe because it's second nature or because it's just part of their entire process, mm-hmm. know that they're doing it and doesn't maybe know how taxing it is on them.
2: And it's not very satisfying. I don't complete this identifying a need and check it off in a box. And it's not very time constrained necessarily. So it just goes on abstractly in the background for a long time. It, it doesn't feel satisfying. I didn't cook that dinner, check mark. I. Thought about that dinner for two days and, and figured out how to get to groceries and what we could spend and who had different allergies. All that happened in the background. None of that did I check off as I went. Although if you're like me, I create a nice little to-do list of all the half of things that I've already done just to feel like I forgot for something. So potentially something to introduce to a couples. But decision making, this decision making process where there's it's a little more shared. Uh, she describes as happening via conversation in couples. So it would okay. seem like possibly one way you could shift the equality in these relationships could be to encourage conversation around this cognitive labor piece and making it more open and making making yourself and your partner more aware of it so that you can share some of these activities. I don't, I mean, hers wasn't an intervention study for sure and is preliminary, but. Yeah, I think the first
0: step would definitely be tying these processes to well being, right? Like, do some of these processes are they linked to if you have more cognitive household labor or whatever she wants to call it, specific dimensions? Are they linked to more or less stress? Are they linked to more or less life satisfaction? And are they linked to more or less relationship quality? In your relationship, do you have good communication? Are you satisfied with your relationship? are any of these dimensions that we know are markers of quality of life and markers of quality healthy relationships romantic relationships are they linked to this at all
2: so oh, yes that's what she's saying she's also aligning some of what she's found with other areas of the literature that suggest that they' that these things uh, this background work is, likely connected to anxiety and worry and lower quality of life and higher stress and higher relationship conflict. So yeah, she's connecting that, but again, not a, um, intervention, not a study of statistics. And so, uh, doesn't know technically the association. Right, right. Exactly.
1: So I had a couple of thoughts while looking at this paper. Um, A couple of things. First, if you look at the research on gay and lesbian relationships and uh, some of the couples I work with in my practice and in our clinic, uh, they don't have this gender division of labor, right? They don't have, I don't, there haven't been, um, you know, these explorations. I'm, you know, these were all straight couples she was talking about. So there haven't been, uh, was it
2: all straight couples? They had had some, or they had some same-sex couples. Uh, but because she didn't do like dyadic analysis, she doesn't know, she's not able to tell whether these, this gender is related to sexual orientation.
1: Yeah. So fair enough. But I, I think too, um, uh, I, w- I was thinking, you know, I lived by myself and was single until I was 35 years old. And so for most of my adult life up until now, I have had to manage my own household, which is a little bit different than managing a household with a partner and kids for sure. But it's been interesting for me to notice this transition in places where I can give up this cognitive processing and places where I still maintain it. Um, And I wonder, especially if and when we have kids in our future, if more of that cognitive process will fall on Chelsea than it does on me, just because that is the socialized expectation. So I was thinking about this, of how do you um, get men in particular uh, in straight relationships to engage in that cognitive processing? And I had a couple of thoughts. So you remember the Cohens out of UC Berkeley? Have you ever, any of you ever read their parenting stuff? I don't think so. We so. do Philip Cohen and I forget his wife's name. They did a lot of parenting
0: well, of course work. You, do, Jacob? Of course, you forget <laughs> it. <his wife. laughs>
1: That's terrible. That's terrible, right? Philip <laughs> well, Cohen. I don't remember. I just know it's Cohen and Cohen. And I saw them present this at. It was a few years ago. Um, the Council on Contemporary Families PR. weren't you at that one in exactly. Chicago?
0: Yeah, it's in. Yeah, it's in Chicago. I think it's held in Miami now.
1: Yeah. Uh, anyway, they were talking about. They were working with low income families who are having their first child. And um, they talked about how this kind of socialization of men. So, like, you know, most men, when they're growing up, they don't watch their siblings if they're the oldest in relationships. So, they're not responsible to do this. And so, there's this socialization that when men come to childcare practices, they haven't been socialized to participate. And so, therefore, sometimes this dynamic comes where when men try to engage in that, they do it wrong. And therefore, in what I don't want to like put a blame on like the Mm. woman, right? But like, uh, oh, bring it on. Is that what you're saying, Sarah? Uh, So (laughs) when they do it wrong, then the other person has to intervene. And there's develops this dynamic of if I want to get out of these responsibilities, I can just do it wrong. And then someone will also take care of it because it's easier. Or on the flip side of that, it can also be the dynamic. You're doing it wrong. I don't trust you to do it.
0: Right. And, and so
1: that mean, process I think can kind of elicit this, um, unequal distribution of the cognitive processing as well. Did that sound really sexist?
0: Probably, no, of, to counter, to counter that, or to add to that, the listeners can decide which I am doing. There is some interesting research and I can't quote who the author is that looked at parents of newborn children. And these are, uh, different sex couples of newborn children. When the child was a newborn, the of the first child, the mother and the father uh, knew the exact same amount, were were similarly capable of parenting the new but when maybe it was six months a year later when they revisited these same parents, they saw that there was then a divide between the mother and the father. So what that article, that research says is that when the baby first arrives, actually there were no gender differences between the parents, but something happens in that process, and maybe it's what you were referring to, Jacob, where that uh, trust or that knowledge differential changes somehow over that first year of the child's life. And I wonder if a lot of that then turns into that cognitive processing of household labor at this paper.
1: I could see that, right? And that I think the Cohen's called it kind of this gatekeeping aspect, right? Which which knowing that these couples have the same amount of knowledge shows that there's either, you know, maybe this this reciprocal process of um, the men aren't expected to and often have more power in the relationship so they can choose to opt out of learning and continue yeah. to learn engaging in that process mm-hmm. whereas for women, especially how they're socialized around motherhood don't have that ability to opt out of learning, right? There's still that pressure there to do both really well. Where, you know, that thing is like, I have friends who have kids and who are dudes. And when their wife goes out, they will say, I am babysitting. The basic level, they're showing that ability to opt out of parenting, which a woman, you would never describe that. Oh, she's babysitting unless they were not her children.
2: Right. Well, and, and this researcher says that these patterns held true, even if they were inconvenient or inefficient. So it doesn't suggest necessarily a positive adaptation to anything that's necessarily easier mm-hmm. or more effective or something that adapts with time because it works. It does suggest, I think power dynamics are definitely an important piece to consider. I mean, in the nine domains that she coded um, the ones most, mo- Six of the nine, I think, were female-led. And that's how women are doing more cognitive labor across the board. But logistics and scheduling and taking care of kids and social relationships were 70% or greater female-led, um, which is a which is a ton of cognitive labor. But the sole domain where um, that was male-led was finances, which suggests a real power dynamic. It's, a, it's literally controlling the capital and participating solely in the cognitive dimension of decision-making, which is this active conversation. Um, uh, where somebody else has done all the work and all the background research and brought that to the table and now I'm here to get an equal say and that I think was what was triggering for me That'd be interesting yeah
1: I thought so yeah
0: I'd like I'd really like to see more research in in this vein uh, mm-hmm. in particular how these processes are linked to well-being how they're linked to relationship quality and also how they're linked to family dynamics. So family of of origin. Did these ex, did these individuals experience similar cognitive processes from their parents? These these gender dynamics. So looking generationally, are these learned behaviors somehow? And how are these behaviors learned if no one's ever talking about them either? Right. So are they, are they transmitted more through behavioral interactions and assumptions that the child picks up on? Yeah,
2: it's a good question. I'm
0: here with the good questions. That's all I have. Yeah. <laughs> Very awesome paper. Thank you so much, Sarah. Any other thoughts Not before much. we leave this segment?
2: Mm, I don't think so.
0: Awesome. Well, finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about the pervasive advice about relationships friends, families, or romantic partner? Did your grandparents have a saying about love and marriage? Did your parents give you advice about friendships or romantic relationships? Do you have a friend or romantic partner who has said something about love or family that maybe confused you or, or maybe struck you as poignant? This is the section of the show where we talk about the pros and cons of that advice. Any advice you want us to talk about, and we'd love to talk about it, Please call us at 865-235-1378, email us the advice at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at attachedpodcast. So today we're going to talk about some advice we found on the World Wide Web, specifically from a website called Fatherly. So this um, is an article by Fatherly titled, Seven Signs Your Partner Is Losing Interest in You and How to Win Her Back.
1: I kind of felt like this was like the movie and book of she's just not that into or what was it? No, what is it called?
0: It was both a book and it was by a,
1: but it was called she's just not that into you. Or yeah. what was
0: it he's just not that into you.
1: He oh, he's just me. not that into you. Yeah.
0: Um, anyway, which I read in college and to be honest, I did like that book <laughs> and we'll get into that later. <laughs> so I'm not going to go through all, we're not going to go through all seven of them today, but I'm going to read a couple Um, And I am excited to hear what we think about. So number one, are you guys ready?
2: Mm -hmm. Yes. Very. Uh,
0: So much enthusiasm. Good.
2: Ready to be advised.
0: (laughs) So advice point number one, they don't have time. If it feels like your partner is avoiding you, or if they're always blowing off plans for one reason or another, there might be cause for concern. (laughs) Couples should want to spend time together. And if they're constantly backing out of quality time, that's definitely a red flag.
1: So can I say the biggest issue I have with this article yes. is they interview this licensed marriage and family therapist. I know. And the funny thing is, is the context they provide to this therapist quotes is sometimes doesn't line up with what this therapist is yes. saying at all. No, that's true. Right? Like, so if you read what Carrie Croweck says in the, as the quote to that goes in compendium with this advice is. There is a continuum of side-by-side side to face-to-face, and different people are satisfied with varying degrees. People should gain awareness of their preference as well as their partners and recognize quality time should encompass, encompass a little bit of what is satisfying to each of you. That's not even talking about they don't have time for you. I don't, like, I don't know. Like, the way that they use uh, this person's quotes just kind of blew my mind. But anyway, that's kind a of... A fair
0: point. Right off the top, we are criticizing fatherly for their
2: journal (laughs) each episode we take out one obscure brand (laughs) at a time and slowly lose all of our potential all money sponsors so our
0: sponsors know we totally held up a shining light to target this episode so target Get out of would love
1: to have your, your backing target. No, I say that just because, like, I don't want to throw Carrie Crowick under the bus. No. I think what she said throughout this article makes sense and is really good. Yeah. How fatherly, or uh, should we say, Jeremy Brown has contextualized all this advice that uh, Carrie gave them.
2: Poor, poor Jeremy getting a show. So oh, Jeremy. Oh, boy. We're disappointed. Bad advice. Oh God. Bad advice.
0: So, so anyway, also, back to the advice, uh, <laughs> uh, as as Jeremy described it, not the marriage and family therapist, they don't have time for you.
2: I mean, I feel like if Jesse was listening to this episode, um, he would be triggered by this because he's had to carry so much of the uh, parenting role lately. I've had to work so long. And if he feels like I'm avoiding him, and he would decide like, oh God, huge problem. Like there's so many ways to possibly interpret this I agree. I
0: also think we have to contextualize this with the commitment level of the relationship, right? So if someone is dating you and you're just dating, you've gone on a couple of dates, maybe you've been dating for like three or four months and all of a sudden they just don't have time for you, like consistently, then yes, I would think that that is a red flag. But if you've been married for seven years and all of a the sudden they don't have time for you, maybe the question should be, everything at work okay? Right. Are you super stressed out? What's you going on? Out. Having a conversation about it. So I think contextualizing this within the relationship itself is a very, very important piece.
1: And I, and I think too, part of the problem with advice is it's always so stagnant right there's going to be times in your relationship throughout the course of the relationship where you're going to have more and less time for each other and if you define it by oh there's a period in my relationship where my partner doesn't have time for me they must not be that into me mm-hmm. that is not going to set up for like times when you're ready to come back together and have that closeness again right because pressures of work raising kids you know like you may have a parent who's sick and you right. have to spend a lot of time with you know there's so many External factors that this piece of advice doesn't take into into account, and so I agree, Patricia. Like if you know if you've been married for seven, eight years, and all of a sudden there's like less time, that's a totally different conversation than you know you went on a couple Tinder dates with this person <laughs> that you randomly meet with, and they don't text you back.
2: but also, it I think it's back to your original point, Jacob, that if it feels like your partner is avoiding you, the real question is what's getting in the way of your saying to your partner. I feel like you're avoiding me. Yes. Is, am I am I off base or why? What's going on for me? Do you think that maybe I'm feeling like that? If you're saying that's not the case, there's probably missed opportunities for connection or other ways that we need to be communicating here. But this doesn't suggest openness. This suggests um, that someone is really anxiously attached and has decided like, oh, red flag. They have blown me off twice, so. I think this is worthy of a conversation at a lot of stages of relationship. Moving on to the next bit of advice
0: that piggies off exactly what we were talking about. The next bit of advice is they don't want to argue with you. So what Jeremy says is you would think the opposite would be true, that arguing would be a sign that marriage is in trouble. But in fact, disagreement happens all the time in a relationship. And if your partner would rather keep quiet instead of talking through an issue, it's a sign of trouble. It can mean that they're no longer interested in fixing the problem in the relationship.
1: Again, I think Jeremy is conflating two ideas, right? (laughs) So read the marriage and family therapist quote. She's talking about stonewalling. Stonewalling is very different than being quiet or shutting down during an argument, right? Just because somebody shuts down during an argument could be for a lot of reasons, not just that they don't want to fix the relationship anymore. Stonewalling is real. It typically happens, after years and years and it's more of like i don't give a shit about you more so than just shutting down and being quiet in an argument right if one partner's trying to engage and the other one gets overwhelmed maybe they have a history of trauma maybe there's a million other things that could be before it happens to be stonewalled so again jeremy don't conflate these two ideas right not wanting to talk in an argument doesn't mean they're just not that into you stonewalling a red flag for divorce, but not wanting to talk in that moment, that could be okay.
0: Absolutely. And there are physiological aspects to not wanting to talk in that moment too. Like you were saying, the trauma piece, or sometimes people just get overwhelmed when argument is there. And the overwhelming is literally your heart rate goes up and your brain functioning shuts down. They need time to calm down before they can actually respond
2: to
1: your comments.
2: This poor underpaid fatherly employee who's getting
1: called out by me. <laughs> I know. Poor Jeremy. Oh boy. oh, boy. You know, and I think, too, like other factors, just like sleep and nutrition. If I'm hangry, don't pick i – I'm going to shut down and not want to talk about something. Like if I haven't got a good night's sleep, you know. If,
2: I, if I'm doing a lot of background cognitive labor, yes. like you're bringing something else to me that is big and emotional and something that needs to be talked about, chances are I'm not going to be able to be right there ready to have that conversation because what you don't recognize is all of this invisible labor that I'm doing mentally that means I can't check right into this next conversation.
0: Absolutely. I love it. You guys ready for number three?
2: Yes. yes ma'am.
0: All right. Romance is out the window. Even if you're spending time with your partner, that doesn't mean that the spark hasn't gone out. Your partner could stop holding your hand or being affectionate not care about appealing to you, preferring to let their appearance go, and sex may be a distant, and hazy memory. These can all be a sign that your relationship may be losing steam.
1: Again, Jeremy, you did the same thing here.
0: (laughs) I really didn't mean for this article to, like, come at poor Jeremy.
1: Well, I think the problem is, is, again, the family therapist, she says, the gestures that keep spark alive aren't big vacations or lacy lingerie. Often it's a million tiny moments, little texts, gentle touches or revealing small likes and dislikes or hopes and fears and dreams can keep us feeling electrified toward another one another. Great
2: quote. Yeah. You know What I really like is the interesting narration voices you both are putting on. <laughs> well, <thank you>. right. <laughs> uh,
0: anybody interested in some VO work, AKA voiceover work,
1: get out. Uh, but like, also, if there's a point in your relationship where romance isn't present, it doesn't mean it's losing steam. Romance, like anything, is going to wax and wane over time. Sometimes you're not going to be able to want to keep your hands off your partner, and sometimes you're going to want to have a lot of distance.
0: That's and right, it, and that. also defining romance. Romance isn't like a dozen roses all the time for every couple. Romance is a very different and couple-specific Thing. oftentimes people romanticize romance if I will or you know
2: think of only
0: the movie in terms of what romance is or should be which is problematic
2: well and it's really very different over the lifespan uh, and over the lifespan of a relationship that this right. I mean that's what Jacob I feel like you're saying in terms of waxing and waning it waxes and wanes within the week within the year but also over the life course this should change this should not look the same for the entirety of your long-term relationship, this should look different, and it um, will look different for each individual partner and for each couple. and if you have defined that romance is going out the window and have not talked about whether the window's even open with your partner, then <laughs> you are not bringing your full self to that partnership, and that that deserves a lot more conversation. Yeah, That's I well said
1: broadly too. I think, and you're this is what you're getting at, Sarah like. Uh, advice, especially when it's couched like this, is very linear. If this, then that. When in fact relationships are dynamic and process-oriented and uh, very non-linear. And so, yeah, if you're not able to say, hey, I think romance is going out the window, that's that's also on you. (laughs) You know, like, if you're worried about that, there should be an engaging conversation around.
0: Yes. That I think is definitely the takeaway from
2: this advice section is, I don't know, Maybe talk about it. Maybe talk about it. After you acknowledge all the invisible work I did to make sure that dinner was on the table. But like, then definitely let's talk about it. Thank you so much for all that invisible work that you did.
0: That's right. Also, let's talk about our romance. A hundred percent I'm willing not to actually recommending that conversation. But you get one of day. I like it. All right, last but not least, are you guys ready for the last bit of advice? Let's, let's do, do it. I- Number four. They don't make you a priority. You need to come first in the relationship. Of course. There are always going to be times when the kids take a priority. But the number one in any relationship should be one another. If your partner is more interested in being with friends and indulging in other hobbies, which assumes that you are a hobby, just FYI, (laughs) then they're not taking the relationship seriously. Thoughts? So <laughs> we're ahead, at the attached podcast right now. We're <laughs>
2: Uh I mean, this is probably I think probably our breakdown. I mean, I personally think our breakdown will be similar to the other pieces of advice we just talked about, but um this is definitely also going to flux over the course of a relationship and there should hopefully be times where you have uh greater interest in spending time with friends or You might have to be putting more energy into your work and um, suggesting that your partner not being your number one priority in any moment is a problematic sign for a relationship uh, really undermines the uh, giving credit to relationships to making this happen back and forth and making this be a process, something that they can negotiate. Because if it's non-negotiable, I I would say if this is non-negotiable, then um, you probably have a bigger problem in in the long run.
1: Yeah, and I think, too, um, the way, again, this is contextualized is, first of all, first of all, first of all, (laughs) first of all, first of all, you know, whatever you want to
0: go. When (laughs) to become one.
1: I think that, especially in our culture, we like to rank things, right? Yeah. What's your first priority? What's your second priority? What's your third priority? And relationships I don't think do well when they're ranked nope. you know like I think that that is problematic in and of itself the second thing too I think is uh the expectation we have that our partner be our number one all the time and they provide mm-hmm. all of our to all of our emotional needs That's and, right you know this sense that so that's just not that has set up uh, Eli Finkel out of Northwestern talks about this. Esther Perel always talks about this. You know, that set up this expectation that our partner is going to be able to meet all of our needs when we need them, at the time we need them, in the way we need them. And that's so much to put on one person. Well, if, and
2: it's also not not just that they're going, that I'm going to prioritize them. It's that they're always going to, I'm always going to be their number one priority. They're always right. going to the It's a one directional, this is a one directional
0: uh Piece of advice, which I think is where my my initial thought was,
2: oh, this is so egocentric. Echo but also, it's I mean, I do also think it's it's saying that I should it's a should right I should prioritize my partner's first, mm-hmm. and also I should expect that they are putting me first above all things. And I think that's what I hear when you say setting them up for failure, Jacob, is that that's not realistic, and that's not how relationships work, and no one ever gets in first place and stays there.
1: Yeah, and and I think that that the flux, the fluidity of priority depends on the context and priority in and of itself. Like just because I have to spend a lot of time with my mother who has to be moved into a nursing home because she just fell and broke her hip. That doesn't mean that that person is not a priority to me, like that my partner is no longer a priority. It's the fact that my, my mother is also a priority and should be a priority. And if, if a partner's feeling left out, they're not in some sense being supportive you know right. like i mean i don't want to like blame the other partner either but i'm just saying that so many relationships are a priority and they should be right you should be able to love and support multiple people but that doesn't mean you're going to do it perfectly all the time or that one person should have your full attention and you should drop everything else for that one
0: person absolutely and also not necessarily in times of crisis but going out and having fun with friends is, can be rejuvenating, it can be fun, and a partner understanding that is important. Yeah.
1: yeah. Esther Perel talks about like in her book, Mating in Captivity, there's this kind of tension between wanting someone to be there emotionally supportive and wanting this erotic connection with someone. The difficulty is emotional connection and attachment kind of takes away the mysterious erotic nature of this person. And so there needs to be these fluctuations in distance and closeness in order for you to maintain, as Jeremy was talking about earlier, the romance in your relationship.
0: Oh, uh, the mystical. So, if romance is a mystery.
1: Yes, right. And that's how she defines eroticism. But, you know, like she'll say, you talk to people on the time they find their partner appealing when they're attractive to other people. You know, if they're in their place of work and they're doing a presentation. And their partners in the audience, they're going to have this erotic connection because they have a distance where this person is now attractive to other people. So I just think that the word priority and the word primacy often gets misused in release.
0: Agreed. Well... I believe that's all we have for this podcast. Thank you everyone for listening. This is Attached. Please send us all your advice that you've heard. Email us theattachedpodcast at gmail.com. Leave us a message 865-235-1374 or send us a, a Twitter tweet at attachedpodcast. Thank you all so much. We'll hear you next time. Thank you all so much.
2: <laughs> Thank all we'll so hear much. you next time. Catch you. Thank it's you all Time so to much. detach.
0: You guys are awful. Thank you all so much. We'll catch you next time.